Lord, I ask now that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning. I want to start today by reminding you, I, I suspect that many of you have read this book already, but reminding you of the plot of one of my favorite books. Uh, in 1945, C.S. Lewis published The Great Divorce, uh, which is a story about a group of travelers who find themselves on a bus ride to the edge of heaven. It's, it's a great book. It's full of, of spiritual insights. If you haven't read it before, you, you should. It, it would be good for your soul. Um, but today, what I want to focus on is when the travelers get to heaven, they are confronted with a series of, of rather unpleasant revelations. Uh, chief among these, most alarming of these, is that they find that they are not actually real. Here's what I mean. They start off in this gray world. They come up to the edge of heaven, and when they get there, up to that point, they think that they are just like you and I. We think that we are real. Um, when they step off of the bus, the first thing they notice is that the light doesn't, doesn't stop when it hits their companions. It shines right through them. When they step onto the grass, the grass pierces through their feet, and they realize at that moment that they are all ghosts. Now, some of them respond to this by running back into the bus and declaring that they will not come out until the bus leaves this land and goes back to the world that they know, the, the gray world down below. But some of them continue, and then another revelation unfolds. They are given the option, for those that remain, they are given the option to transition from a vacation in heaven, right, a sort of field day trip, to they can make it an immigration. They are welcome to stay, to journey further in to the heavens. And they are promised that as they journey towards the truth, that they will become more real themselves, that their bodies will take on form and substance, that, that the, uh, the light will shine upon them rather than through them, that the grass will begin to bend under their feet, if only they will keep going forward. And so the, the rest of the story, if, I, if I'm giving away the plot, I apologize, but it's been like 80 years. Um, <laughs> but the rest of the story is a series of conversations. The, the narrator is one of the passengers, and he has a conversation, but he also witnesses several others. All of the conversations have to do with this question of what is real, what the ghost is going to hold on to as real, whether the ghost is going to, um, to pursue the, the truth that is above and beyond them, and in doing so become more true themselves, or whether they're going to hold on to their own sort of their own vision, their own view of what really matters, and, and eventually be consumed by it. Now, there's a spiritual principle behind the story that Lewis is telling. It's this, you become whatever you put at the center. The thing you prize as real is the thing that shapes you, that forms you. There's a, there's a Christian theologian and writer out in California named Robert Barron, and he puts it this way. He says, the spiritual life, the, the Christian life begins with this, find the center. Find the one who sits at the center. And every other part of the Christian journey emanates from that place. Our Lord put, it, it put the same principle a different way. He said, whatever... Um, Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you prize as the most central, the most real, there your heart, your direction, your orientation, your decisions will all reflect that. 
will all point you towards that. Now today, we, we have a feast that's all about the sinner, all about the nature of the truth, the, the, like capital T truth, right? Truth itself, or, or rather himself. Today is Trinity Sunday, where we celebrate that God has revealed himself to us, that God, through the words of his Son, the teachings of the Holy Spirit, has allowed us a glimpse into the divine life into the center of all things, that God has revealed himself as a trinity, as one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all distinct, but all the God who is one, a communion of persons. And if that sounds like a paradox, if that it feels confusing. It should, right? It makes sense that the nature of God would be confusing. God is beyond us. There's, um, if we could comprehend him completely, that, that would be a worrying sign, right? So the fact that we have to just sort of posit these things, we take from Scripture these truths and say, somehow this works out in a way that's beyond us, that, that actually is appropriate. There's a quote from John Wesley I think is kind of fun here. He says, show me a worm that can comprehend the idea of a man, and I'll show you a man that can comprehend God, right? God is, God is as beyond us as we are beyond worms, well, and more so. One of the virtues, then, of the doctrine of the Trinity is that it serves to remind us that our only hope of knowing God is his self-disclosure to us, right? That God reaches down and communicates himself to us, that God in his word, in the word, become flesh makes known what we could never know on our own. In the Trinity, then, we celebrate the self-revelation of God, the very name, as one theologian puts it, of the God who has claimed us, in whose image we are made, and by whose spirit we are made alive. So, our goal for today is to show how the doctrine of the Trinity, the name of our God, is good news, how the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit transforms and enlightens our understanding of God's work in the world. And I'm going I'm to propose three ways in which this works, three sort of implications that we can draw from the Trinity. First, the Trinity shows us the image in which we are made. It, it testifies to the very nature of our creation. Second, the doctrine of the Trinity reveals the extent of God's love for us. And third, the doctrine of the Trinity reveals the purpose of salvation. So first, we'll begin with creation. And, and I'd like to do this one a little backwards. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with an observation about who we are and then show how God fulfills that, right? Rather than starting with, um, with the doctrine and then showing its reflection on us, we'll just we'll flip this one. So scripture says, and the church has always maintained, that man is made in the image of God, that every true and good thing in humanity corresponds to the God who made us to be like him. So we love because God loves, but our love isn't perfect, right? It imperfectly represents what is fully true in God, that God is love. We experience joy, right? And God is the very essence of joy. All joy emanates from God. You see what's going on here, right? So aspects of our being find their resolution in God. The things that are most true about us, the things that are deepest in us, are there because they reflect the image of God. And there's one, there's one aspect in particular I want to draw out today. One at the very core of our being, and that's this, that we exist as, we exist necessarily as individuals 
and individuals in relationship. We have this, this clear idea that we exist, right? Like, I've never been confused about whether I'm myself or I'm someone else. Like, I know that I exist here. And yet, my whole self-concept, my whole understanding of who I am is derived from and in reference to my interaction with others. The ability to know oneself is a product of living in relationship with others. Developmentally, a child is formed by the interactions with the people around her. She begins to know herself, to interpret reality through lenses provided by her interactions with those closest to her. And I, I don't just mean that in, a, like, in, a, um, you know, in the sense of taste, right, or fashion, or, or what we might call like culture. What I mean is even on like a, just like on a neurobiological level, the response to fear, the ability to assess danger, the, the ability to assess, to assess opportunities, to determine actions, all of those find their source in those interactions with the people that are right next to her in infancy, that are taking care of and, and helping her to grow. There's a way in which we, um, there's a way in which we are absolutely, we're born persons. We're also formed in personhood. We become more and more real in the presence of one another, right? We, we pick up these things as we grow and as we're shaped. And yet, Again, each of us is our own self. There, there's a paradox there. How often do we strive for community, and yet when we get there, want to push away from it, right? To define ourselves in distinction from it. There's a part of us that really wants relationships. I really want to be close to you. But I also, there's a part of me that fears being consumed by relationships, right? And you can see this really well with teenagers, right? Teenagers just display everything openly that the rest of us kind of hide internally, right? But teenagers want to be part of a group, and they also want to not be part of the group and to stand out. There's, there's a paradox there. There's something about us that's captured in each of those situations. And that tension, it turns out, you can see that in Scripture too, right? Think of our Isaiah reading. How does Isaiah respond to the presence of God? He, he responds in lament, right, in sort of recognition of his own fallenness, of his own unworthiness. And, and there's a way, I mean, that's the appropriate response, right? He comes to the end of himself and realizes, I think in a way that, um, that even for the prophet, was, it wasn't something he had encountered before. Oh, I am really not God. And that's, that's a good response to have. That's healthy. But how does he do it? He does it in two ways. He says, woe to me because I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. There's both of those pieces together. And this, this continues right through scripture. Think of last week we talked about St. Peter. The promises of God are for you and for your children. Or think about St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, right? Where he's continually urging the Christians to see themselves as gifted by the Holy Spirit for the sake of the one body of Christ to understand themselves as individuals as participating in this one body of what God is doing, this one unified work of God in the world. We find that we are relational beings, that we need one another. And yet that, that at times, like I said, can be sort of an unpleasant reality. It can be something that we push against. Just like the prophet, we we might be tempted to say, woe is me, because I dwell in the midst of broken and untrustworthy relationships. Our need for relationships is always imperfect. It's always hindered, right? So what, is this, what does this have to do with the Trinity? Simply this. Here, here's the rule. What we find broken and partial in our lives is fulfilled in the life of the God in whose image we are made. 
What we find broken and partial in our lives is fulfilled in the image of the God in whose image we are made. We exist as relational and yet distinct individuals in an imperfect way. God is the perfection of unity and distinction, right? God holds perfectly this balance of being distinct and yet being one, right? The Father is not the Son. The Son, if maybe you've seen that, that, uh, that shield, right, that has the Trinity on it, and it sort of on the outside says the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, but each of them is God. There's this unity and distinction, this communion of persons. Think of Christ's language in the Gospel of John. At no point does he claim to be the Father, and yet throughout the Gospel, the complete love and union between the Father and the Son is emphasized repeatedly. Christ says, the Father and I are one. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Everything that the Father has is mine, right? There's a complete and total self-giving between the members of the Trinity. In identifying himself simply as the Son, Christ isn't, he's not saying, you know, it's not like if I say, hi, I'm, I'm Father Bill, I'm a dad, right? And, and I also, um, you know, I wear this other hat over here or, or anything like that. Jesus isn't talking about an occupation. He's talking about his identity. His identity is the Son. The Father is the Father. These aren't secondary things. These are the sort of essential things, the things right at the core of who they are. And Christ shows us that there's no, by being the Son, Christ is showing us that there's no part of Him that He withholds from the Father. His very essence is in His relationship with His Father. Their communion is perfect in a way that ours are incapable of being. We desire relationships with one another, but then sin creeps in and corrupts it. The Trinity, then, is the perfect expression of love, the fulfillment of relationships that we were created to enjoy, right? Unity and distinction. So there's the point. The Trinity illuminates the image of the one in whose image we are made. So then our second point about the, what the Trinity teaches us about the love of God. The Trinity, which exists in this perfect self-giving relationship, gives itself completely to our salvation. Sometimes we can have this mistaken notion that salvation was a sort of clandestine effort, a sort of, you know, if you know the myth of Prometheus who, who steals fire from the gods to bring it to mankind and then the gods punish him, right? We, sometimes we think of salvation like that or, or like a dysfunctional family. The, the father is mad at us and so Jesus being the good older brother goes and tries to smooth things over right, between the Father and, and the rest of us. I don't know if your family worked like that growing up. We had, you know, we had that person in our family, right? And it was clear, if you were out with mom, all right, go get big brother. He's going to make everything okay. We, we can think of salvation like that. But that's not what Scripture says. That's not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is that from the beginning to end, the work of the entire Godhead is there to create and redeem the people of God. Jesus reveals to us this in John. He says, all that the Father has given me, I have kept. He says that his words are the Father's words. The Son hasn't set off on some sort of clandestine mission. He was sent by the Father. If you look at Christ and you, and you can see there the love that he has for you, it's the Father's love for you. The Son emanates the Father's love. The Son is the very expression of the Father's love. The Father loves you. How much? Enough that He sends His Son to pay the price for your redemption, right? So the Son's love for us is the Father's love. 
Christ is at pains to explain to us that the work he does, he does because of the Father. But what about the Spirit? How does the Spirit... So there's the Father and the Son. We can see how they're involved in salvation. How does the Spirit factor into this? And I, I think that's the part that sometimes we really miss, and yet I, that is the very essence of the life that we have in salvation. So let's, if we look at our third point, I think we can get there. How does the Spirit factor into God's work? You see, the Spirit is the gift of hope. St. Paul calls it the down payment, the, the promise of our future inheritance. And here, maybe we need to do a little more correcting of the way we think. See, sometimes we think of the Spirit... When we, um, let's see, when we think of the Spirit, we tend to think of Him as maybe like the force or like a magic eight ball, right? The Spirit, you know, is there to kind of tell me right from wrong, or, or maybe the Spirit's there to kind of give me a picture of what, what I should do. Sometimes He'll answer questions if I don't know which way I'm supposed to go. That's where the Spirit comes in. But that's, that's a cheap distortion, right, of what God is really doing. What Scripture says about the Spirit, what the creeds say about the Spirit is that the Spirit is the giver of life. It's the Spirit that gives life. In the beginning, it's the Spirit that hovers over creation. It's the Spirit that gives life to Adam when he's formed out of the dust, right? God puts his Spirit into Adam. It's the Spirit in that great story from Ezekiel about the valley of the dry bones, right? The bones are all there. Flesh has come on them. Tendons are there. This is a vision. If you haven't read it, it it's, it's kind of cool. But the, so people are made, but they're not moving. And what does Ezekiel have to do? He prophesies to the Spirit and the Spirit comes and makes them alive. It's, it's worth pausing to think about for a moment what the word Spirit means. The word Spirit means the very life of the thing, not just its biological life, but its energy, the direction of its being. So when we talk of the Spirit of God, we're speaking about the very being of God. Augustine calls it the love of God that's exchanged between the Father and the Son. To have love, you need a lover, you need a beloved. And then there's a third thing. It's the love that goes between the two of them. And that's the Spirit, right? That's what God gives us. God takes His very Spirit and puts it inside of us. There's another place in Ezekiel, right, where He says it's not enough to just smooth things over, right? It wouldn't be enough to have sort of the dysfunctional family model, right, where Jesus just comes and makes things right. Your hearts are dead, He says. Your hearts are like stone. I'm going to put a new heart inside of you. And so what's the heart that God gives us? He gives us his very own heart, his very own spirit. He draws us into the love which is exchanged between the Father and the Son. And there's something profound there. There's something there that we can only wonder at. Somehow we are drawn in to the life of God. That this exchange of love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, right? That we are drawn into that. That we created beings are now our life. The life that's given to us is the very Spirit of God. Augustine calls this mystery the Felix Culpa, the happy fall. He says, we were created just as created beings, and we fell, right? We, we disobeyed. We rebelled against God. But God in His salvation never just puts things back to where they were. He never just puts the jar back on the shelf. He elevates it. And now, all of a sudden, we are sons and daughters of God. We are filled with the Spirit of God. And in being raised up, we are united to God and we're united to one another, right? St. Paul says that the gifting of the Holy Spirit is for the building up of the one body. The Holy Spirit then enables us to love, 
to love one another. That, that tension that we talked about earlier of wanting to love, wanting to be loved, wanting to be in relationship, of that being a, an essential part of who we are becomes fulfilled in the gift of the Spirit who unites us to one another by uniting us to Christ. Now, as we conclude today, right, we've talked about the ways that the Spirit, that the Trinity then reveals to us who we are, and it shows us the love of God. It shows us the way that God, as the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, is invested in salvation, that He's promised redemption, that He pulls us into His very life. I want to highlight the ways that this doctrine permeates our worship of God. That's, that's the response in Revelation, right, is worship. That's the response in the Psalms is worship. That's what, what Isaiah sees going on in the heavens, right, is worship of God. And that rightly for the church then is mirrored in the way that we approach God, right? And so we have this, today is a feast of the Trinity. It's a, it's a day specially set aside to sort of highlight the doctrine of the Trinity, to talk about, hey, this is what this is, to remind ourselves. But that permeates all of our worship of God. And so as we continue in, with the prayers, the Eucharist, as we sing praises to God, just notice the ways that the Trinity is constantly put before us. It's not accidental. We are people bound together by the one God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has made us in his image, who has saved us, and who has given us life. Our worship of him is rightly shaped at every level by this reality. So in just a moment, we're going to stand. We're going to say the Nicene Creed together. And I just want to point out that the creed itself is shaped by the Trinity. Each section highlights a particular member of the Trinity and the work that they do in salvation. Right? The Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, his Son who becomes one of us, who, who suffers death in our place, the, son, the Spirit who has spoken to the prophets, who gives life to the church the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, distinct and yet existing in perfect communion. Let's go ahead and stand together and affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. I invite you to sit or kneel as we continue in prayer.